Welcome, my friends. How you doing? We're fresh in the second season of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. I am so excited today for you to hear from Alex Jameson. Besides being a close personal friend of mine, she's also a client. Um, we've known each other for years. We've even been to Costa Rica together. But you know her because she's an Oscar-nominated producer of a little film called Supersize Me. She uh, has written numerous books. She's a world-renowned vegan chef. She was a vegan thought leader. I suppose you could use that term. And then she went through some things and discovered veganism wasn't for her. She got some blowback for that. But we don't really get into that so much. We get into her art. Yes, today is about Alex Jamison, the artist, mostly. And um, Alex is an amazing artist, and you'll have an opportunity to hear about how she does watercolor. I actually own an original Jamison. Uh, it's beautiful. You're going to hear us talk about her artwork and how you can look at it online and how you could even purchase it. You also want to make sure that you purchase Abe's muffins and put them in your face. They taste great. They are allergen-free. You can hear Brooklyn behind me. All of Brooklyn loves Abe's muffins. I even think all of Brooklyn loves Alex Jameson, and I think you will too once you get a chance to hear her talk about art, fascism, being a woman, what we're living with. I don't know. Here you go. Here's my dear friend and client, uh, Alex Jameson. Alex Jameson, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so thrilled to have you on again. I think you might be my first double guest. Woohoo! Thanks. It's so good to be back. <laughs> and it's so it's so appropriate because you and I have been friends for a long time. And I'm really happy that we were friends before I actually knew who you were. <laughs> and what that means is like you and I, I remember specifically hanging out with you. And then we were at a party at a place in the village playing ping pong. And I was just like, wow, this person is fun and attractive and energetic. And we just like, we just hit it off really great. And then only later did I discover you were also that person who was an Oscar nominated uh, documentary producer who I'd seen be on Oprah, which normally that kind of thing would make it like I wouldn't talk to you. So I'm glad none of that was the case. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Um, pardon the background noise of Brooklyn. I'm doing my best to keep it quiet here, but that's, you know, life in the city, as you know. Um, and just so everybody's clear, um, you and I have been friends. Um, you and I have, uh, I've been your attorney um, for a variety of things. I have purchased your art, which is in my home. So, it's a mutual admiration thing and I don't care. I'm still, I still think it's wildly appropriate for people to know about you and what you're up to. So now that I've talked a lot, I just want to say, um, I, I am really smitten with your artwork and also how you are about encouraging other people with art. So tell me how that process happened. You know, I, it's been a lifelong struggle. I was born into a family 
half of my family is incredibly creative. My mom's side of the family, I'm a third generation artist. My mom, my grandmother, all my mom's siblings, all artists. And yet I, there, there was a lot of baggage that came along with that. There's also a lot of mental illness and addiction on that side of the family. And there was also, um, and, and maybe this is true in every family. I don't know. In my family, I had this sense that there was also competition around artistry. <laughs> I'm, la I'm laughing because everything you said pertains to my family. My father was an amazing photographer. My grandfather made fashion. Um, there was drug and alcohol abuse in my family, various levels of what I'll just delightfully call crazy. And, uh, you know, my father won, literally won awards for his photography. I won medals for my cello playing. I lettered in cello, like, you know, like, and I think there's a combination of supporting each other in a family, but also, wait a second, I'm a little jealous while I'm supporting you or, yeah. is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, and I lettered in drama. <laughs> Yeah, they actually gave me a letter. I could have gotten a letterman's jacket. <laughs> I got a letter for cello. Yeah, a literal, a green F for Farmingdale. That's yeah. hilarious. I wish I, now I wish I had gotten a letterman's jacket that would, with a little tragedy and comedy mask on it. How rad would that be now? Oh. I would have gotten shoved into a locker if I actually put my letter on anything, but. Yeah, yeah it was interesting. Um, it's funny, I, never considered myself an artist but I was always I always thought well I'm, I'm very crafty like I'm creative and I'm crafty and by the way I think that the um the looking down our noses at crafters is bullshit um I think especially if you go look at Etsy and what people who call themselves crafters create I'm like you're a straight up legit artist you're um what people can do is amazing so whatever you call yourself you're a creative artisan right um but because my mom god love her and I, I you know now that she's dead we have an incredible relationship and we're all good <laughs> I feel the same way about my dad I talk to my dad all the time oh yeah it's like all the animosity's gone and I feel like oh you know we get each other without all the bs now but it felt like there was competition there and so I did things creatively that she didn't do so yeah, but you're she, also products of your time, right? I mean, she was a hippie. Total hippie, back to the lander, had an organic gardening radio show for 10 years every Saturday in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. But also, let's like, just, by the way, don't gloss over you grew up in Portland, Oregon, and seriously. she was a hippie there. But just want to let that. Oh, yeah. I mean, land. my parents met at Lewis and Clark College. They did not go to Reed. So at least they had that going for them. Uh, anybody who's from the Northwest will get what I'm saying. But she like, so she did photography and clothing design and she did a bunch of things. I did writing. I did drama and musical theater. I like, if she did it, I didn't go there. Cause I, by the I, way though, you were a little, uh, you were a lovely little athlete. I've seen pictures of you in a baseball or softball uniform. Baseball. And, uh, My mom made me play baseball. <laughs> right. And that ball is harder, literally mm -hmm. as smaller and the game is just more difficult. It's way faster. And you also were a model for a hot minute. For like one photo shoot. Yeah. 
I did. I did one uh, Ralph Lauren jean photo shoot line, which was so funny. It's weird because I think you'd be an excellent model, and even more now. I'm not. I obviously I know your husband and you. I'm not out of. I'm not hitting on you or anything weird. I'm just saying you have a certain look that I think would be so good for Ralph Lauren. Well, thanks. It was it was really fun. Um, but yeah, I I also grew up with um, a lot of secrets and shame around the mental illness in my family. Like before I was five, there were two suicides and close family members. And by the time I was 15, there were two more attempted suicides by other family members. So it was just like, I don't have a life without a lot of death and sadness. And oh. I didn't I didn't tell anyone about that. It was very terrifying and shameful. My mom was a hoarder after my folks divorced. It got incredibly bad. So people never came over to my house. So I never felt good in myself or about myself. And I was diagnosed with scoliosis at age 12 and had to wear this inch thick body brace from below my hips to... Mm-hmm up my back and you I must just, have felt crazy attractive as a young teenage girl oh my god that is the time of life when you don't want to stand out <laughs> and it was the most painful object to have to wear 23 uh. hours a day for two years so anyway I just I never felt attractive I never felt attractive I never felt cool I still don't um <laughs> I think it's like embedded into us those yeah, well it's funny you say that it's like we make decisions on our bar- about ourselves from like the up to the age of eight. And then it's like set in some kind of stone. And it doesn't matter that you've been on magazines, you've been on television shows, your work of whatever kind it is gets awards. You're still that kid who's like, oh God, I'm in trouble or I'm not going to sit at the cool kids table. Even when you're at legitimately considered the cool kids table, it's not, it's never good enough because you've already lost. You know, it's so funny. I'm still really close friends with three women that I've known since um, middle school and elementary school. We went to high school together. Um, they were, I, I went to a really special high school in, outside of Portland. And there were several people in my class who are still professional musicians and artists. Like it was a very unique educate like one of the best public high schools in America but the focus on the arts and creativity was actually really high and so I have friends that I'm still connected with like the youth bagpiping champion of North America is like in the New York Times these days because he teaches bagpiping over wow like crazy yeah I'm laughing just because most people are not that hip to the bagpiping scene I will say that I love bagpipes. No, but my college where I graduated, you know, we had a procession of bagpiping. I I just always love that sound. It's so alien to my background. Um, I'm not remotely, nobody in my culture has that, but I love it. It's got, it's got a lot of its own cool baggage about it. You know, the Highlands royalty, you know, yeah. people on skirts, regardless of their gender. Yeah, rebellion as well. Like it was outlawed for a long time by the British. Um, I didn't anyway, know that. Yeah, yeah, because it was such a great fighting tool. Um, yeah, you could hear it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could make the other side crazy. <laughs> if that's true. 
Yeah, I, I love it. I'm sorry. Um, I want I want to talk about your art though. I um I have a limited amount of time with you, and I want people to know that your artwork is what I consider some of the most difficult work to do. At least from my point of view, you do a lot of watercolor. Now I know you do some other things too, but to me, watercolor is very unforgiving. Mm -hmm. certainly compared to acrylics and oils where you can go, oh, I can scrape that off or I can blend that. Watercolor, it's on, it's done. And if you did it wrong, you're going to take that sheet of paper, use it as kindling and on to the next project. Is that accurate or am I mistaken? Um, it depends. For the most part, once it's on the paper, like it's tough to get it. I mean, it's tough to get it out. Although... Um, uh, because I I was taught, I, I call myself unschooled or undisciplined because I didn't go to art school, but I did start working with a, a watercolor teacher about 12 years ago, and I've taken classes with her in person off and on. So, but she taught me from the beginning. She's like, use this quality paper. It's 100% cotton, so it's basically fabric. So you can scrub it out. Oh, uh, yeah. But it's not like what you're talking about, oil. You can just like cover it up. It, it will impact what you're trying to create. But that's part of what I love about it. Look, I'm very, I can be very type A, very linear at times. And I don't even know if I believe in astrology, but I'm all fire and air in my chart. And I love, I'm like, oh, like water is very hard to control you just got to go with it and I need like that cooling kind of let's see what happens kind of energy in my life well, can I just take a side a detour here you said something that really hooked me and I want to talk to people about I used to have this notion that whatever you were going to do you had to study it preferably get some kind of degree or certificate or whatever but I found in my own life I, I was an actor. I took one acting class in college and found myself uh, just auditioning for commercials and got my union card because I'm just funny and natural. And I've done, you know, I'm in all the unions. I've been in some stuff, whatever. I took some acting classes, but mostly as an afterthought. And they tended to actually get me too much in my head. And ultimately, I had to leave them behind. Now, I'm not saying that acting schools aren't good for whatever, but I also, you know, I don't know how much Picasso went to art school. I mean, I literally don't know. I don't know if Basquiat, I don't know who these, like, and I don't, when you're Basquiat and you go to art school, let's say you did, they don't teach you to suddenly do what you're doing so completely differently. Um, and I, you know, I find it to be a really difficult dichotomy, this like learn your craft, which I think is important. You should definitely learn your craft. You can't just like throw crap at everything. Jackson Pollock already did that. But you, on the other hand, school is not always the answer. I mean, that's what I'm, so I wanted to ask you to talk about that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, was, it wasn't until I came to New York City and I went to something called the Outsider Art Fair which is really incredible. Anybody can come to it. And, you know, it's all people who didn't go to art school. It's either self-taught people 
who do consider themselves artists or found art or you know people people who you would people might have heard of grandma moses here's a a woman who didn't start painting until like her 80s or wasn't discovered until her late 80s or something they also have people like they'll find pages in the walls of an old insane asylum of you know some patient like stole pages from a doctor and like drew on the page and there's like this incredible series of bizarre art and there's that famous there's some famous guy who was actually deeply disturbed henry darger i bet thank you and there's issues regarding naked children and genitalia but putting that aside for the moment his artwork is amazing terrifying disturbing powerful but also what you said with grandma moses you know when you go to new orleans and the mississippi delta area you have some folk artists who are doing powerful work and their medium is like, oh, there was a building that fell apart. So I sawed off pieces of the wood from the building and I painted on them. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most human attributes is to be creative. You know, when, when you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first need at the bottom of the hierarchy is air and then water and then food and shelter. The very, very top is like, self-expression and you know your ultimate calling etc so i i i really think that everyone has the capacity to be creative in some way and it's interesting i've you know i chose this is you're gonna love this i chose to take watercolor classes because well so i was going through my divorce and i was like i need something that's not parenting and that's not my business. I've been a coach. This is years ago, by the way. So yeah. people know, like, your current husband is your current husband. Everything's right. fine with Bob. For <laughs> for those who met him on this show, like, months and months ago. Right. That's right. not the divorce we're talking Bob about. Bob and I are great. great. First husband, divorce, depressed, exhausted, parenting, <laughs> running my business. So I was like, I need something that's just for me, but I'm not going to monetize. I need to find an art class or something fun. And I was like... My mom and my grandma Bushka both said they hated watercolor because it was so difficult. I was like, okay, neither of them do watercolor. I'm going to take a watercolor class. <laughs> so that's right. how I stumbled into it. It was just completely by chance and loved it and found success with it right away. And, you know, it's, it's a place where I can like find my own flow state very easily. Like I can just get lost in the doing of it very quickly very easily what, what i love about your watercolors are that they are based in reality and then they go somewhere and i'm just going to try to with words describe the work but for people uh, what's the website that people can go to, to so they can actually see your work alexandrajameson.com slash art great can they buy your work on that website yeah, there's links to my gallery and everything there. Great. So um, my wife and I own a piece of yours that is a painting of a fake water tower. Here in Brooklyn, there's a couple of art pieces that are water towers, but they're made out of stained glass. And they light up at night. And you can see them from the highways. And they're very beautiful. And I think they are, they're not whimsical because that's too lighthearted a word for it. I think that they are beautiful and they show a new way of looking at something that is very much a part of the landscape every day um so i i love water towers i love brooklyn and when i saw this piece at your home one time when i was there i think i said to you i want that and then i had a little conference with my wife and then i think we basically just bought it 
and then you framed it for us or whatever. Anyway, um, but there you know, are subtle, it is not purely representational because there's also some subtle gold work in it, which has this celestial quality. I don't want to overanalyze your work. That's for somebody else to do. But in your most recent work, because yes, boys and girls, I actually enjoy looking at what Alex is doing now. I urge you to do that too, because um, I love art. I also, like I said, we're friends and you're a client. And um, the, the use of metallic, either paint or substance or whatever, has grown or seems to be. And I'm going to guess it's, it's just happened. You're not, it's not like you said, okay, by month three, I'm going to add more gold. I mean, tell me, maybe I'm wrong. But it seems a very natural evolution. And I think it is, it's lending something to the work that I really dig. Can you talk about that? Um, you know, I'm really influenced by, I love science fiction. I've always watched a lot of sci-fi and I read mostly sci-fi for fun. Um, I was also a bit of a comic book nerd and I love uh, Ralph Bakshi movies growing up. Just for people who don't know, describe what that means who was ralph bakshi so, ralph bakshi was a very cool uh illustrator animator who made heavy metal he made the first hobbit film that was so it was like really spooky weird cartoons um but so fascinating and then i love i i still love like neil gaiman's the sandman comics i love all those uh, like dark games. crystal and things like oh that. yeah dark crystal is so awesome i love all that stuff i had a so, suspicion <laughs> so basically like my inner 12 year old comes to the painting table with me and i've always loved metallic like i have a ton of jewelry um i i'm i feel like i'm part crow i'm also really into birding i i feel like i'm like shiny objects i'm like ooh, what's that <laughs> we both live in brooklyn and this year because of the pandemic i've walked outside more than ever before and i've always done that living here but um holly and i have discovered birders more birders people who like to go bird watching have been in the parks that we frequent and they've pointed I, I'm not shy, as you would know. I just go up to people and I say, what are you looking at? And usually, if they're not terrified, they'll tell me. And I saw a red tanager for the first, a scarlet tanager for the first time. I thought cardinals were the reddest birds. But, oh, my God. Like, I had no idea they were here. Okay, I'm going to go birding for a second. For, yeah, do I, it. Go. I am a, a total fanatic. I got into birding when I moved to New York City because uh, I grew up on the West Coast. There's tons of birds out here I'd never seen before. Sure. And New York City is one of the best places in America for birding. Can you say that again? Because when I, I know this to be true now, but growing up on Long Island, like I, I saw blue jays and sparrows and seagulls. And that was like, that's all I knew. So... Right. No, because of where New York City is situated, we've got um, we've got the harbor, we've got fresh water, we've got seawater, and we're on a major migratory pathway for the eastern seaboard. So hundreds of species of birds are flying through here twice a year for spring and fall migration, and they'd make a little stop because we've got all these different kinds of water and Central Park and Prospect Park. So it's so amazing you'll go birding and 
you will see dozens of species of birds in an hour. Whereas if you went to freaking Yellowstone, you might see like two species. <laughs> and you and I have been to Costa Rica mm -hmm. um, uh, for other reasons. I remember spending a week in Costa Rica when you and I were both there. Uh, I don't know if it was that particular trip, but I've been to Costa Rica where you'll see people trudging off into the jungle with giant cameras and telescopes yeah. and whatever. And don't get me wrong, there's amazing birds in Costa Rica that you won't see here, you know, toucans and hummingbirds and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I have seen some birding books for this area and they are huge. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's it's very cool. And listen, I grew up on an old farm outside of Portland, Oregon. I was a real nature kid, like, you know, running around without shoes three months out of the year, running around in the trees, going to the coast. So like a lot of my work is very influenced by the natural world. I, I, I paint a lot of sky, you know, I paint a lot of either night skies or sunsets and sunrises, but I add these, what I call asterisms, which is just kind of unnamed astrological bodies, like, you know, unnamed constellations, or I make up planets and I put in orbits and I add gold ink and gold foil so that there's, you know, I just love the gradation, the ombre that you can make with watercolor. I really paint. love, I love your use of space. Because, mm -hmm. And I don't mean space like outer space. I mean, literally space on your canvas or paper. And I love that you talked about, I didn't realize this. Yes, there's a celestial quality about the orbits, especially that, you know, in an interesting way, make the space comfortable and understandable as opposed to just there's a whole empty field here. I, I just, there's so much that the eye can't see. So I'm just like imagining what what is beyond what we can see. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make it up. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a moon here with an orbit and another little moon going around it. And who knows? And I just my husband jokes, he's like, your first solo show is going to be called, ooh, that would be pretty, because that's <laughs> when, when I try to describe my style of what, you know, what kind of painter are you? I'm a let's try it painter. And you no, know, I love, I love that because I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. When I, I've, I've represented writers, including you, because you are a writer uh, also, you've got several books out there, but there's mainly two types of writers. There's uh, pantsers, people who just show up at the paper and go, I wonder what I'll write about today and just start writing. And then there's other people who outline and outline and outline. And I'm confident that the same is true for artists, that there are people who cerebrally look at what they're going to do. They sketch for hours, days, what have you, before they approach their final easel paper, whatever. Is that accurate? Um, I'm, I do both um, because I started doing some commissions and like large scale commissions for the most part. Um, you know, I've learned how to make my own canvases out of watercolor paper so I can get up to like, you know, 30 by 40 inches. That's and, a nice size. Yeah, it's pretty wild and it's really fucking stressful. It's so stressful to be working on something for someone else and to have to like get it right mm. or, or really, you know, like be in connection with them through all these steps in the process and wonder, are they going to like this? Whereas if I'm just painting for myself, 
you know, and I know that they're hiring me because they've seen what I've done and they like what I've done. So they are trusting me to, to bring myself to. But this goes back to what we talked about before. You're going to have that imposter syndrome conversation in your head. It's like, yeah. yeah, they saw these pictures, but those were flukes or they like those, but do they really like those? I mean, I don't want to give you more crazy thoughts. I'm sure you have enough. I know I oh, do. No. Listen, I'm a professional imposter syndrome slayer. That is pretty much what I do, no matter whether I'm an artist or a coach or a writer. <laughs> Can you explain that? Because I know you haven't, you are a consultant for creative people. And by the way, my, my impression is it's mostly for women. Uh, I don't know if you really do have male clients. It's not a complaint. I'm just, I, I don't know. And I also know from, you know, living on this planet, especially for the last few decades, that women have a whole lot more baggage they have to deal with in our society about being heard and producing art and stuff. So well, I do, having I, said that, I work with men and women when it comes to my consulting work with Bob. So he and I have corporate clients that we do group facilitation with and, and team exercises with, et cetera. And I have done imposter syndrome work with both men and women. And the truth is, Men and women have imposter syndrome basically at the same rates. Um, and I believe it's mostly the same kind of stuff. But there, there's been very little study about imposter syndrome. And the only hardcore study I could find was done on women, with women. And the only proven technique found to actually help it is to get together with a, with a group of women who you trust and respect and talk about your imposter syndrome. <laughs> so it's like the only way to deal with it is to talk about it together, which is kind of great. Um, and I don't know if it's the same for men. And I would love to work with men around this, but it's interesting. Um, I feel like this is a safe place for me to tell you this, but I've only run into three people my entire life when the subject of imposter syndrome came up, they didn't know what I was talking about. Out of those three, all women, two were Israeli, and one is my sister-in-law, who's a professional equestrian. Got it. Well, yeah, I, well, you know what? I can say that, um, wow, you know, if you have, from what I'm about to say, if you don't like it, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a comment or a message or see if you want to communicate with Alex, too. But um, I have an experience of Israeli people and Israeli women as being different than most people culturally. It's got nothing to do with being Jewish. I think mean, it's got everything to be do with a history of participating in every aspect of society, whether it's the kibbutz, not, not just sent to care for children, but to like work on machines, to be in the military, not just as nurses, but as troops. Yeah. I think that there was, I'm not saying there's not a patriarchy there, and I am not an expert on Israeli culture. I'm just saying that I don't think it's an accident what you're talking about, based yeah. on my experience. So all my, my New Yorker Jewish girlfriends are like, oh, that makes total sense to us. <laughs> And all the Israel and the two and, and this is a very small sample size. The two Israeli women were like, "Yeah, that makes sense." That the other woman who you heard this from was an Israeli woman. Like, <laughs> it's like, all right, like no judgment. I just thought that was fascinating. Right. I actually had several Israeli woman friends, and, uh, and I'm, I'm absolutely. I promise you, and I'll get back to you about it. 
Okay, I might good. even get back to the podcast about it. But, um, but here's the thing, when it comes to imposter syndrome, um, I've gotten comfortable with it and I'm just like, oh, oh, there you are. Okay, like this is never gonna end. Like this is never gonna go away. That voice inside me that says I'm not good enough or that I, who do I think I am that I could charge this much for a painting or for coaching? Oh, like that voice has been there for 20 God damn years. Okay. So that's there. Now, what was I doing again? Like, it's just time to get back to work. Yeah, I love the, I, I, I hear you. You know, that happens for me as you and I were talking beforehand. I got back to songwriting, something I did years and years ago. Tried to get into Nashville with some famous people. Long story, blah, blah, blah. Came back to it because my wife bought me a guitar, which I really wanted. I uh, just started playing every day. A song came out that I wrote for a person's new baby. And I was like, wow, this is good. Played it for a friend in the music business. He's like, wow, you can really write. We should put together something. And since then I've been writing. And my experience is the same. It's, or similar. There's another tripwire for people in the arts that uh, is sort of an automatic, it happens. There's nothing to be done about it. And um, it's comparison. You know, like by my age, Mozart had written everything and had been dead for 30 years. Not that I'm doing Mozart, but like, you know, I'll listen to, I, I watched a Bob Dylan documentary recently and I don't write like Bob Dylan. I saw something on George Harrison recently. I don't write like George Harrison. And uh, at some point you just have to be comfortable being you. I mean, I don't, I don't have the answer, except I know that when you start doing the road of comparison, it doesn't end with well, that was fun and I feel empowered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I gave myself an experiment this year and it's really only in the last three years that my artwork has become a, a business. You know, it's prof it's professional and I have receipts and my own spreadsheets for this. And I gave myself an experiment this year to get rejected from 50 galleries, art shows, curators, et cetera. And the reason I did that is because it became like I gamified it. I gamified getting my work out there. And so for every rejection I get, I'm like, oh, I got another one. Okay, great. Now I got to go to apply to three more. I love it's that because uh, has having been a professional actor who had, like I said, a, a modicum of success, I had a, a ton of rejections. One year, I tracked. One year, I tracked every audition and how it went. And I literally got nothing. I got nothing. And I think the number was like 240 auditions in New York City. Now, remember, when you're in New York and you're doing theater and commercial and film auditions, you're up. You're in the major leagues. You're up against the best of the best. You know, it's like any great person from Iowa is coming to New York. Any great L.A. is a little different. Some people go to L.A. or Chicago. But for the most part, people come to New York, especially for theater. So I was up against the best and I just got my ass handed to me. <laughs> but that was also part of the game. It's like, how many auditions will I hit today? I love, uh, I, yeah. I'm impressed. So because of that, I've gotten into a, a couple of art shows and, you know, a couple of magazine things. So, you know, things, things are happening and this is a, you know, it's a long-term passion for me. It's not something I'm going to give up on, but I knew that there were things that I needed to get better at and applying to 
residencies and applying to shows like it's its own skill set you have to learn how to write about and which images to select like there's a whole level of strategy that I wasn't familiar with um yeah and you know even like figuring out oh you know I've only been selling originals for the last several years so finding an online service where I can get prints made or greeting cards made of my images and doing all that research and learning about copyright and having, now I have like a boilerplate commission contract with people who want to commission with me. So, you know, all these things took time, but I didn't pressure myself to figure it all out at once. I also love that, you know, I follow you on all the social media on Instagram, I don't do TikTok, but on Instagram, you have videos of you doing some work or writing about your work. You are really good at being a visual artist, whether it's the final piece of art or communicating about your art in a visual way. Just to remind people, how can they follow you on Instagram or Twitter or any of that stuff? Oh, yeah. Instagram's the best. Uh, just delicious Alex. <laughs> Is that all one word? Yeah, one word on Instagram, delicious Alex. And just so people know, that's because, uh, you know, Alex Jameson, my guest, has been known for years as a chef, at one point, the preeminent vegan chef and vegan spokesperson without reliving the last 20 years. That changed. You're no longer vegan. Infamously Uh, no longer vegan. (laughs) Yes, I remember reading some very unfortunate communications from people who, I will say, were disappointed with their leader. That's a whole other conversation, but we should talk about that at some point. Well, Um, actually, Eric, that brings up a point that I did want to talk about. Um, Because I I had a conversation about this yesterday, that I can be hard on myself that I've done so many different things over the course of my career. Like, why can't I just stick with one thing? You know, I I spent all this money on culinary school. Now I paid that loan off with my first cookbook advance. So it's fine. Like, but even that, like I give myself these benchmarks that I have to hit in order to prove to myself that it was a successful experiment. Um, You know, cooking and then coaching and now art. And I'm like, why? I, I do get down on myself sometimes. Like, can I, can I share something about that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously I went to law school <laughs> and I am still a lawyer, but I've written novels that have never been finished and will never be seen. And it's just been part of my process, whatever that process is. There's no such thing as wasted time. I did a special course on estate planning fairly recently before the pandemic because I saw friends dealing with uh, parents who were getting older and they were getting older. And I thought, you know what? Let me be of service to these people. The pandemic hit. And I thought, oh my God, here I am. I'm going to talk about this. People are going to be like, oh, Eric is my estate guy. No one wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to do a will. Nobody wants to do a trust. Everyone wants to ignore the fact that we're all going to die. I'm not saying tomorrow, <laughs> but eventually, and I got bad news and I'm sorry, guys, you we're all going to die. It's just the reality. And no one wants to deal with it. And I spent some money and time to do that. And I literally recently took it off my website as a thing that I do Hmm. because it just, it, people wanted me to be the showbiz attorney. They want me to do contracts and business stuff. That's what I'm doing. I do not. I, for a moment, I thought, Oh, I wasted that. There are still people who come to me for that. And I'm glad I have that. Or I know 
you know what, that's just not going to be my, this is too complicated or too whatever, and I'll give it to somebody else to do. Um, but it is never wasted. And I don't know those relationships. You Look, you and I have been in relationships, not with each other, but in relationships which ended with like legal fees and paperwork. And then we thought they might be over, but then they came back again with other things, whatever. And, you know, that make, that's how we got to be with the people we really love today. Without that, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, everything was dating. <laughs> Explain that. You just got to try everything out to see what's right for you. Yeah, and Sometimes. nobody... Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. But that's, that's the gift, gifts. right? Isn't that the, that's the secret you said? <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. And by the way, I have found with all the schooling, and you and I have done a lot of schooling, the truth is you really learn by just doing the thing. I learned about being an actor by getting work on films and commercials and plays and doing the work. And same with law. It's like they teach you a lot in law school. You have no idea what you're doing until you get into a courtroom or some of the typewriter. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so wild. And listen, I, my degree was in U.S. history. I have a degree in history. How's and, that going? <laughs> well, it gives you it gives you a good basis, I think, to like learn how to research and learn how to put things in context. Um, but shit, I didn't know about the you know, all of the, the black massacres that happened across America. Me either. You and I, I, so I studied political science. That's my degree. I didn't know about that whole Tulsa thing. I never heard of it until like the BLM, all these mm -hmm. protests and watching specials, the 13th amendment. There's that great uh, documentary. documentary. Yeah. But I urge people to get educated by like going to Netflix I mean, you can watch comedy, you can watch drama, and you can also get educated by some brilliant people. Anyway, I'm sorry, but, you know, I know nothing about Native American peoples, except that we screwed them badly. Yeah, we did. And they're still here. Hello. Or how, about, here. how about American fascism? You know, there okay. were people. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is the last thing that I want to talk about. <laughs> this, is what, okay. this is what's lighting a fire under my creativity for the last couple of years. Creativity is one of the most important tools and antidotes to the rise of fascism and authoritarianism. Creative thinking, a diversity of, of thought, is one of the most important things that we can do is self-expression because it requires us to come up with new solutions. It requires us to listen to people and look at problems in new ways. And censorship is going to happen. Oh yeah. And it's going to get and it's going to get worse. And that just makes us more creative. You've seen you can see it throughout history if you go look at the 20th century and fascism and the rise of authoritarianism, you'll see how different artists you know wove themselves into new ways and used words and images in new ways to get around the censorship and it's so important that we pay artists that we look at what outside artists are doing now i've got a huge issue like i am new to the professional art world in new york city but man once i started opening my eyes i was like wait a minute how many women are represented by the top galleries and museums like two i'm gonna guess not many uh, very <laughs> very few it's ridiculous how many women how many people of color forget it i couldn't tell you i i don't know but i will say this um i 
uh, I love that you're talking about this. I want to mention a couple of things. There's a book by a guy named Timothy Snyder, I think his name called On Tyranny. I urge everybody to read it. I listen to it. It's an audio book. He reads it. It, It's very short, but it's basically a how to fight fascism book. Um, and, And you certainly are talking about one of the ways. Another thing is there was a documentary. I uh, it was about art uh, that happened. There was a famous art show called the Deviant Art Show that the Nazi regime uh, created in the 1930s. When they came to power, they took all of the art that they considered deviant and placed it up in a public show to show people that this is the worst. This is an art. Art is like statues of naked men in Nazi helmets. And and what they showed in that art show was the brilliant 20th century art of some amazing masters of abstract expressionism and Dadaism and other things. And there's a very famous German critic who went to the show. And as soon as he left the show, he packed up his bags and he left Germany because he knew the shit had hit the fan, that this was a defining moment. There, it, I don't know what it was. It's a great documentary and it talks about yeah. all of these artists. Have you seen it? Do you, no, do you know I haven't, but I'm going to go. But listen, this is the thing that gives me hope because I'm even though I think the, the right candidate won the last election, I am still terrified for the future of the United States of America. Yeah, it ain't over. Particularly. But the thing that gives me the most hope is the artists, the creative people, the people in community who are serving each other, who are working together to find these new solutions for almost nothing, right? Creativity can be done, like we said, with broken boards from a a falling down building. Like that is the thing that gives me hope. So if you're feeling depressed, feeling hopeless, like go out and find the artists that just bring something that you respond to. And you know, that's why it's, it's why we love music. Right. How often have you been feeling something that you couldn't find words for that you couldn't figure out how to express and you heard that song and that song just helped you. Oh God, somebody else has felt this way too, or it touches something in you that nobody else could heal. That is what we need. I'll tell you, uh, I'm going to turn 60 in the fall and uh, I decided to, I'm going to do a show. I'm going to do a house concert probably in my own home. I write rent a space, but not literally in my home. I have a building that has a space in it and uh, I'm going to raise money for New York food bank. I'll give people more information about that. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of asking other artists to participate. We can certainly talk offline. Um, and I love this idea of artists uh, networking further. You and I both know a ton of creative people yeah, and I, I think it's now more important than ever for us to be vocal about creativity and anti-fascism. I think about the I think about Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, you know, because I watched that Dylan documentary and Dylan himself. And, you know, you know, when he went electric, it's like that was a whole it, it was not dissimilar from when you said, you know what, I decided that for me, I do need to eat meat. My doctor said this, whatever. And people went nuts when he came out with by the way, not just a bunch of idiots, the band, guys who would become the band, arguably one of the greatest rock bands ever. And they got booed off the stage constantly. It's just a constant, I don't want to say battle, but, you know, artists, have we're the ones that pave the way for yeah. people to see what's possible. Yep. That's a good way of putting it. Absolutely. No, we only have a few minutes left. 
Um, I want to remind people if they have questions, they can go to isthatreallylegal.com. They can also follow Delicious Alex and they can go to alexandrajameson.com um, to look at the artwork. Um, be like me, buy cool art and put it in your apartment. You know what's amazing? I've got your work. I have work, uh, a very good friend of ours who's an actress and a teacher, Susan Finch. Her father is an amazing artist who teaches art uh, we have one of his works. I mean, we have a German friend who we commissioned who's going to paint work. It, it's just like, why not have your home be luxurious? That doesn't mean covered in velvet. It means whatever turns you on in terms of art, music, whatever. So I just want to let people know your work is something that I consider both luxurious and a necessity. Mm. <laughs> That's oh, why I have you. it. You're so thank welcome. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you having me back on. It's my pleasure. Did you have anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to talk about in these closing no, moments? Man, we, covered, we covered all the good stuff. Thank okay. you. Well, be well. I look forward. I have a suspicion that I'm going to be drinking something delicious on your roof sometime soon, eating yes. some food. Yes. Sunset cruise on the roof. <laughs> Give my love to everybody in your home. I'll do Me the same too. here. Thanks so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really, really love you and appreciate you. Love you too, Well, there you have it. I told you that was going to be awesome. Alex is a very special person, a brilliant artist. Um, how are you doing? Besides enjoying that, which I'm sure you did, uh, did you get your vaccine? Are you doing what you can to fight fascism? You know, I want to recommend Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. Timothy Snyder is a professor at Yale, and he wrote a short but great book about fighting fascism. Check it out. I also want you to eat Abe's muffins. You're gonna like them. Why don't you just buy them and eat them? They are allergen free. If there are people you think I should be interviewing, you should tell me. Because I've got a lot of great guests coming up. You may know some of them, you may not know some of them. But there are some very cool people coming down the pike, all very creative, all very interesting, and I promise you will enjoy and continue to enjoy this podcast. Subscribe as long as you're loving it. Subscribe, review it wherever you review them. But most of all, take care of yourself and look for other people to take care of. It's really important now more than ever. Okay? Be well and we'll see you soon.